Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. How did the horses get there? Seriously, you're going, you're going live. <laughs> Were you just trying to slip that in without me noticing? <laughs> um, no, nothing like that. Tell me about the horses. <laughs> the horses on Sable Island. I, I think they. I, I, I'm basically just going to make something up. But so Wikipedia <laughs> will obviously have better information. But I think they're from, you know, Spanish traders, or something. <laughs> <laughs> being shipwrecked there like obviously they were introduced the, the wild horses don't generally roam around in the middle of the the atlantic but um yeah anyway they're very beautiful with long shaggy manes and nothing to eat but but grass but yes and horses themselves hello dearies welcome to undersampled radio episode 49 we're here today at the misinformation center of undersampled radio headquarters where we are talking to an expert in the field of sable island <laughs> which is his name is matt hall uh sable island if you don't know is an uninhabited island about 100 miles southeast of nova scotia mm -hmm. and it apparently has wild horses roaming around yeah and um you know, at least I think a couple of hundred shipwrecks. I mean, it was very bad for shipwrecks back in the day before GPS. And it was a glacially formed island, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So um, apparently, it's it's hard to get to because it's protected by the Nova Scotian government. I mean, that is, of course, unless you accidentally wreck your ship into it, then then you're there. Yeah, and I think I mean. Yeah, uh, it may even be uh, protected by the federal government. Um, you know, like I say, yeah, the Sable Island National Park Reserve. So it's a federal thing. Um, and like I say, I don't actually know how to visit it. I think it'd be an amazing place to visit, but don't one of the there. most interesting for me parts about Sable Island is that it's not completely imaged by Google satellite imagery, the ends are sort of clipped off by their by their algorithm. So that's cool. There's not a whole lot of places left like that in the world. No, right. Huh? Can you think of any other ones? Yeah, it always surprises me how even places you would think would be very sensitive, um, uh, you know, they seem to be imaged just fine, you know, military bases and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I guess the Arctic uh, things maybe fall apart because of the projection a bit around the poles and things. But um, no, I can't remember the last time I found somewhere I wanted to see that I couldn't. I mean, the coast has always been a bit of a problem because you'd like to see sometimes sort of tidal flats. And like I remember looking off the coast of Georgia and places like that where there's some really beautiful estuaries. And you feel like you can see things in the sea, maybe because the water is very shallow, or maybe there's sediment plumes there. And obviously, Google doesn't care about those. I think you get the same thing around 
the Mississippi Delta. And you'd like it to go a little bit further offshore. Mm -hmm. I've also looked for oil rigs and things before, but they're all... Cause I, and I assume that all of that is just because they don't want to be storing lots of high-res images of the sea. Right, not, except... Not because of anything else. Except, I was just... Uh, when we were talking with Brendan last week, I was I looked up uh, Planet Labs on Google, and they actually are initiating or already have initiated a project to image the sea surface, and it's it's at like meter resolution. Okay, so that's cool. But actually, given the choice, I think maybe I'd rather just have the sea floor, like just take the sea away, and have the high res bathymetry. Sure. Yeah. Maybe even colored in with some clever algorithm. And a jet so color map. No, so that it's sort of natural color of oh. mud. There was an amazing, oh, I'll, I'll have to look for the uh, link, but there was a really cool visualization floating around yesterday, animated visualization of aerosols in the atmosphere that I think NASA put out. But it's well worth Googling up if you can be bothered. Um, but yeah, basically, I, I think I saw a GIF version of it. So it's just a globe spinning, but with these aerosols, the aerosols were um, carbon, dust, uh, were, hmm, salt, like sea salt. That was a surprising one to me. And I think the other one was sulfates, but I'm not totally sure, actually, from memory. But anyway, it's very nicely done. You know, NASA's pretty good at that kind of thing. Yeah, there's and a cool site. Yeah. If you, if you haven't seen it, called Lance. There's modus imagery. This is oh. a, a, uh, you know what I'm talking about? No, yeah, I've heard of Satellite imagery of, of various uh, pieces of the world. So that's cool. Check that out if you haven't seen it. Hmm. We have a lot of show notes to get through today, man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you have a printout there? I always print it out. Yeah, I know. This is a technology show. What are you doing? <laughs> don't, you, don't you have seven iPads or something sure. at your house? You could already do iPads. Spare one tablet. Yeah, you'd think, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I need I need a kind of multimedia booth. But anyway, for now, a piece of paper will do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I could go full digital and scan it in, and look at the PDF <laughs> oh, on my phone. Yes. Anyway, uh, yeah. So. so I see a note in there about the tensor to tensor library. Hmm. <laughs> is that you? Did that come from you? <laughs> it did, but I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> okay, so Steve posted this in Software Underground this morning. It looks pretty cool. Um, I, I clicked on the link there, which is a news article by TechCrunch about tensor to tensor. And I wanted the real thing, so I just GitHub searched tensor to tensor, and I ran into the wrong thing. Okay. Which is, which was kind of cool too. It was, and of course, I don't have the author's reference, but it's the first hit on GitHub. Uh, it is a image translation network, like, uh, or, or not. I, I said that wrong. It's not an image translation network. Strike that from the record. It is a sequence to sequence network, and um, it's much like, um, you know, the encoder decoder stuff that we were doing a while back with. Um, digit translation. So um, that's cool, but that's not tensor to tensor. So why don't you tell us about what tensor to tensor is? Well, I, I don't know much about what it is, but it, 
um, a very quick reading of that article suggested that they're basically just trying to make TensorFlow a little bit more accessible, make it easier to swap models in and out and mm -hmm. easier to swap data sets in and out, which I, you know, like I wrote in the show notes, sounds a bit like an attempt to sort of scikit learnify TensorFlow, not, you know, not to sort of use scikit-learn's API exactly, but the philosophy of being able to very quickly um, change architectures or, or change data sets, I think is really cool. And uh, maybe a little bit like what Keras tries to do, which is to sort of abstract um, Theano or TensorFlow deep learning libraries, again, with, with a scikit-learn style um, philosophy. You know, so I, you know, I, th I think stuff like that's great. We need high-level things so that you can go and try things easily without a whole bunch of documentation reading or flailing around, getting nothing done. Um, but you know, maybe it's not something for the person who's already deep into TensorFlow. Right. Right. Um, or, or if you enjoy flailing around. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know. Sometimes flailing around is fun. What is the survey you have on here? Uh, so um, Paige Bailey, who's an awesome um, geophysics slash uh, sort of big data, data analytics, machine learning, uh, young professional at uh, Chevron. She's um, also, you know, she, she goes along to hackathons and she's just really into anything analytics and is putting together a um, series of tutorials and I think leading to, well, I think it's gonna be a blog for now, so maybe I don't know exactly where it's leading, um, but a series of tutorials on um, machine learning and related topics. And so she's put up this survey, it's on her Twitter feed. Uh, she's called Dynamic Web Page, uh, page with an I. In uh, on Twitter, and you so you can find a link to it there, and the links in the show notes as well. It's a survey monkey. She's basically asking for opinions on you know what kind of topics people are interested in, and what she should do first, and what kind of whether people want to see videos or read blog posts or what how, what they'd like to consume, and. Um, for every response she gets to the survey, she's committed to doing a blog post slash video slash some kind of installment of this awesome sounding um, tutorial series. Yeah, yeah. so. Um, could be a lot of posts. Could be, <laughs> potentially, she may have let herself in for, yeah, the next 20 years worth of uh, <laughs> spare time. But um, anyway, it sounds like a really cool project. So. Um, show some support if you're interested in that kind of thing um, from a legit geophysicist and uh, check out her survey. Cool. I'll do it uh, right after this show. Um, again, the link is in the show notes if you'd like to do it. We also have a note here about Google Object Detection. Yes. Uh, yes. That, hasn't that been a thing for five years? It's been a thing for five years, and I think oh. it's just basically getting better and Better. So they've just open sourced. I don't know if this is like, um, you know, bicycle companies bringing out their last year's Tour de France bicycle. Uh, <laughs> this is like maybe Google releasing one of the more recent iterations of its object detection stuff. 
but it's you know reading their stuff um, or reading the PR around it sounds like it's pretty good at what it does. I haven't played a lot with object detection. One of the hackathon um, projects was um, using some of the object detection in OpenCV. Um, so it was kind of on my, I noticed it kind of because of that, because I thought their project was really cool. So what, what where was that? Where, did, <laughs> where was that project? Uh, so, <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, you know, so yeah, two, what, 10 days, no, I don't know, nearly two weeks ago was the hackathon, the long-awaited subsurface hackathon on machine learning in Paris, Paris, France, and uh, it was it was pretty awesome. It was at least an 11 on the awesome scale, and um, yeah, 13 projects, 60 plus, more than 60 participants. Um, Lots of croissants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a good time was had by all. It was um, it was a really good weekend. So still sort of coming down from it, and I, I wrote so many notes on the plane home, like of stuff to write about, think about, follow up on, plan for the future. Um, yeah, I feel like that event is going to keep me and hopefully us and hopefully lots of people busy for the foreseeable future. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad to see that you're so excited about it. I, it was, um, it's been yeah, many there, years worth of... I feel like I saw you there. Oh, I, yeah, I was there. Um, I Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I think everybody who attended or participated in any way, even even those of, of the participants that, that weren't there, felt the buzz and were sort of inspired by a lot of the projects. Um, it was my second agile hackathon. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the first one where I was contributing uh, a lot of time and energy to the um, event. And it was awesome, man. Um, it, was, it was amazing to see new hackers learning and seasoned hackers learning and I mean everybody at by the end of the weekend learned 10 new skills yeah. and had just like you a huge list of notes and ideas and things to try in the coming weeks um, so my uh, my hackathon project would ne which never came to fruition unfortunately was to um, tell Alexa to record some voice, convert it to a segway, and then tweet it out. Uh, <laughs> it didn't work out because apparently Alexa does not allow you to send raw um, audio recording files up to the cloud uh, because of privacy concerns. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, I, le I did. I learned a lot. Um, and in fact, right before this um, episode started, I was working on the second iteration of that project, which is an intelligent Twitter bot, which uh, learns what 
some Twitter users are into and then tweets back at them in the style of their own voice. So <laughs> prepare yourself. That's not because, creepy at all. Because you're high on that list of, of <laughs> targeted users, of victims for the, uh, for the Twitter bot, uh, which I'm hoping will be live and unleashed by the end of the weekend. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I've, I've tried a couple of times to build Twitter bots and never actually deployed any. I've got at least half a dozen Twitter bot accounts <laughs> waiting for their instructions. And What's your favorite? I'm not sure where I've always got stuck. Well, the, I mean, uh, I think the sort of bad rainbow bot, I, I still think will be quite good fun that basically watches people's feeds for images that use the rainbow or jet type spectrum color bar and sort of just sort of publicly chastises them for it but <laughs> but all but also takes their image and fixes it basically re-rendering the data with a uh you know with a sort of perceptually linear color bar and tweeting it back at them going you know i fixed it for you yep it's pretty awesome it'd be a pretty annoying thing to get to be on the receiving end of but oh well just part I think of the most know, of the Twitter bot, <laughs> I think most of those things end up being pretty annoying. Um, yeah, potentially. Yeah, I mean, I, just like anything, it's just the infrastructure and the plumbing take 10 times the amount of coding time that the fun stuff takes. So right. uh, I finished all the fun stuff already, and now I'm just working on automation and data handling. Yeah, I mean, potentially you're just, I mean, I, I think, doing something with a particular user isn't too bad because you're not having to suck down a huge amount of data. You know, oh. like the, the rainbow bot would have to basically watch all of Twitter, yeah. um, whereas your mimicry bot can just watch a single person. At that a time. Much, yeah, much. But it's gonna flip, flip it's gonna switch users automatically. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Because you got trigger words. <laughs> it's it's words, awesome. words that send it over the edge. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll be fun to do a to do a sort of social media themed hackathon. Actually, someday might, might not make a bad theme. Just let me. Uh, we'll pause. Let's pause here while you write this down with your pen on your paper. <laughs> I already <laughs> have a list of about four hundred potential themes of hackathons, but yeah, sure. All right, I'll write it down. Good, thank you. While Matt does that, um, I will, with a pen, with a disposable fountain pen. Yeah. Wait a minute, did oh, I tell you about this? Did I tell you about those disposable fountain pens? You did. I don't know if it was this one. Was Let it these? This. Wait, zoom out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's it. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Look. Well, I must have bought this after okay. our conversation. Going right there, it's similar. Varsity. Nice. So, so in case you guys missed it, a little bit better than you. In case you guys missed it, uh, I it, so in case you're left-handed and you're listening to this show, you should buy one of these a pack of disposable fountain pens. They're the only pens, and I searched for years, which are acceptable for writing. As a left-handed person, it, they the ink dries fast enough not to get on your hand. So I love them, and literally, this is the only pen I use now. I bought. I mean, a while ago, I bought like. I don't know, 100 packs of these things. Um, so 
where do you hold your where does your hand go when you're when you're writing it goes um, straight, do, you, do, you, do you write from the side or from below like a right-handed person usually seems to oh i dropped my pen so i can't show you hold on Heavy. this is good Happy. this is good for a radio show because no one can see it i don't know i hold it like this does that answer your question okay so more or less from the side from the side a, a lot of a lot of righties seem to write from underneath yeah but oh I yeah write, no no i write from above oh really mm. yeah i'm not sure i can position things properly but basically i kind of wrap my hand around like that oh yeah that's bad how's your carpal tunnel uh well basically yeah it's um like that actually did hurt quite a bit but i don't normally sit like that but um yeah i'm it's it's good thanks i don't write very much you know to oh be just just this is a special time you understand radio is a special yeah occasion. the only time i need <laughs> can you now that we've completely derailed the hackathon conversation can you, you tell us uh tell us what you thought about the hackathon and uh what didn't work uh, well, I mean, the list of, yeah, I didn't write a list of things that did work because nearly everything worked. Um, you, you know, worked better than I thought it was going to. So just, I can run off a few, I guess, off the top of my head. Um, getting people into Slack early, I think, was a, was a help. I think sending people the list of potential projects, I think, was a help, although I haven't circled back with a lot of people about that, but seemed to be good. Um, the theme sure worked out. I think the theme was of machine learning was a big reason why we had, why we sold out the event and had sixty people there on the day. Um, it worked out really well co-hosting the event with Total. They were awesome uh, hosts. Uh, their their venue was beautiful and perfect for for what we, we needed. Um, the, all the rest of the logistics basically worked out. Um, the Saturday morning of getting people together into teams worked fabulously. We were coding. I mean, everyone was basically ready to go by like 9.59.59, which was a record. We've gone till 11 or past 11 before. Um, the boot camp went, went, went really well. Uh, in fact, I'd love to make the boot camp even more successful. It just scares me a little bit because it's at some point it becomes as much work as the hackathon itself. So maybe we need a bit more of a team approach to pull that off in future, I think. Um, yeah, the, the, the so the things that I kind of, you know, wrote down to think about a bit more carefully next time were, um, well, the remote participation was one that you boldly took on. And boldly fumbled. Was, <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think you fumbled it at all. I think it was, it, it, you, you were much bolder than I would have been in an experiment. So I appreciated that because I'd have done it with two people and you were like, no, no, let's do eight. Right. That was the goal. And I think we finished with four. I think I'm, I kind of lost track a little bit, but um, so I would say it was pretty awesome that we had. Martin in South Africa and uh, Alfredo in Peru, uh, you know, and these people were like contributing to their teams in a very real way. Um, so, I mean, it was, I was impressed and sat, like more than satisfied uh, by the, the, just the fact that it worked out. Um, but I think, you know, we just need to think, and may, maybe it's actually uh, a scaling back of the technology requirement. I think we, we maybe overestimated what people really needed. They don't need to be connected to tablets. 
because Slack and Hangouts and stuff are good enough. Um, but we can, you know, anyway. So that's one thing. Um, I felt like the mentoring, I, I, I guess I went into the event thinking, you know, I hope we don't overwhelm the teams with like too much mentoring. Like, hey, let me mentor you uh, and <laughs> basically getting in their way. Um, but I wonder if we went a bit too far the other way, because um, I, I wondered at the end if we hadn't let a couple of teams kind of spin off into directions that maybe a little bit of of input could have helped focus them a bit. Um, yeah, so I feel like we could be more help uh, to to some teams. Anyway, that's another note I made. Um, we we do. <laughs> normally I finish off and I'm like because there's four teams and four projects I can like write these things down, email the individuals and say hey can I get a screenshot and if you've got a repo can you point point me to your repo, and normally I end up with a really good overview of what everybody did, and this time, I, I, I was it was chaos yeah basically and I, I there's you know I have no record of what some teams even did I, I have no idea. I've no screenshots. I, I wasn't focused on the presentations at the end, so I, I can't even speak to kind of what they attempted. Um, and I, I feel like we need to get better at that, but I'm not sure how yet. Um, I think we'll, I'll, I'll send a bunch of emails and we'll figure it out in the end. But um, it that felt a bit uh, different. I guess this time, and like I say, I think just a function of having so many teams. Um, the under a thousand dollar TV studio that you basically single-handedly constructed out of pieces of sellotape and a couple of <laughs> Amazon fires at the end was pretty spectacular. And uh, the <laughs> it's so cool. Like we've got all this media from the end, um, from the presentations, really good audio. This video where you were like being a TV producer and switching around, and basically you were just at the mercy of the not totally ideal Wi-Fi at the end there. Um, some really good B-roll from the uh, uh, GoPro. Um, it's pretty awesome. Um, I think the next iteration of that, like no, knowing what, that we're going to try something <laughs> like that ahead of yeah. time, yeah. assembling a little bit more equipment. Like maybe a lav mic and a couple of other bits and bobs, and I think you can pull off like a totally professional job for under a thousand dollars, which is pretty awesome. Yes, indeed. Like multiple videos, high quality audio. Um, another thing is like, like I'm unsure how to follow up with some of the teams, and I I kind of want to offer them support and facilitate a conversation with sponsors or partners or whoever wants to talk to these people i feel like we could do more to not it's not to intermediate that intermediate those conversations but to make sure that those conversations happen if people want them to happen kind of thing because i think opportunities uh came out of this hackathon some of the projects were spectacular and uh i i guess we need to feel our way through how to make sure awesome things happen. Um, uh, uh, yeah, give them the best chance of happening anyway. And then the other thing that I just sort of made some notes about was like what, 
how how to bring this to far more people you know how to how to do one of these in i don't know stavanger jakarta um houston this is the franchise idea that we were talking about with sue webb a couple of weeks ago yeah but yeah to to yeah exactly to reference that here's a, here's a let me just repeat what we were talking about a couple weeks yeah. ago uh so we we were speaking with uh, dr sue webb about her experience with the Africa Array Field School. And she mentioned to us that she had stu uh, past students who became professors who were interested in setting up their own field schools. And so she gave them the tools, the basically a script with how she ran her field school to enable them to run their own field school. And uh, it would be cool to do that with the hackathon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they came to her field school and, you know, so I feel like, you know, maybe I don't know if um, people necessarily have to have been to the hackathon. I think they probably I think they probably do. Um, maybe remote participation is enough, but I, I feel like being there is a. But I don't want to call it a profound experience, but I mean, it is an experience uh, that's hard to replicate or describe. Um, <laughs> coupled with a kind of handbook, like our playbook, essentially, for, you know, what to think about ahead of time and when. And a lot of that already exists because I've already written a lot a lot of it down over the last few years. Um, would would basically equip someone to go off and do it. So, you know, if someone's listening and thinks, yeah, I'd, I'd like to run a hackathon uh, around subsurface stuff um, in my city or whatever, then uh, get in touch and, you know, maybe you can be the, the guinea pig for how we help spread this because you know i don't like we don't have the bandwidth to go around doing a lot of these um or, or, or you know the human or financial resources um but i'm i'm totally happy to share how we how we do them so yeah if you're listening thinking oh that sounds cool then uh, get in touch um yeah and I, well I put, like <laughs> there's not just sort of petroleum or even subsurface I mean I'm quite interested in what hackathons can do in um, corporate land so inside of organizations uh, around all sorts of themes uh, I'm interested in what they can do in in other kind of horizontals if you like um, uh, geospatial where they already do happen of course um, what can they do in things like geothermal uh, so I mean, I th you know, there's all sorts of ways to scale this thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be just the same event over and over again. I think there are different communities and different uh, things to attack. Another another thing we've never, we haven't tried yet is sort of a hackathon around a particular technology, um, mm -hmm. where you know you're you're actually hacking against a particular API or p piece of open source software. Like um, they do something a little bit similar. Um, in for Madagascar, and actually, there's oh, one coming right. up this year in Houston. It's um, soon too, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It's the next. If it's month. not July, then it's August. Um, it's at the University of Houston. It's called the Madagascar Working Workshop. Um, it's Carl Schleicher and uh, Sergey Fomel and and those guys. And I think they have about thirty people or so along at this thing. And it's. Uh, a week, if I remember rightly, and it's laptops open, hacking around, and I think this year they're doing it on building tutorials, basically. So they've got this kind of theme of hacking on this 
particular kind of content, which I think sounds fantastic, you know, and so much, I mean, there's so many awesome bits of technology out there from what, I mean, there's Open Detect, QGIS, uh, FreeUSP, Seismic Unix, Open Sea Size, Madagascar, PyNoddy, Simpeg, you know, all, all of these things um, would be, would make a great centerpiece for a technology specific hackathon or sprint or whatever. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> um, so Evan Bianco, who was assisting at the hackathon, uh, wanted to discuss a couple things here, and he wrote some notes for us today. Um, he wanted to talk about what makes a great hackathon team um, and sort of um, build a maybe a list or a spreadsheet of ideas which um, kind of highlights what makes a good hackathon team and good hackathon team members. And so I don't know, I'm, I'm hesitant to attack this question from the standpoint of uh, the teams who won prizes at the end, right? Because everybody did seriously awesome projects. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'm not sure how he wants to quantify highly successful hackathoners. Um, but I will say that the most successful teams, um, or the most, the most, uh, the, the teams with the best demos came with an idea, right? They had already, they had uh, yeah. decided on a project. In many cases, they had started to build parts of their, to gather a few people for the team. Um, and really start thinking about the idea in quantitative terms before the event started. Um, yeah, that, that was the first thing I wrote down was, it, it really makes a big difference if there's at least one person on the team who has real vision for a particular project. Right. So that they, they've totally sort of internalized the problem that they're trying to solve and what would constitute a useful usable solution to that problem. Um, and it, I, I, I'm not sure that it necessarily needs to have been decided on ahead of the day, because I think in the past we've seen stuff happen, really awesome projects come out uh, that, that no one had thought much about before the day. But if there's got to be some kind of energy and buzz around that, around that project and people are kind of can see can see and feel almost what would make an awesome demo for the end, right? Because either because it's a project they or a problem rather they're experiencing themselves or that they've coached people through lots of times or you know that kind of thing. Uh, that profound understanding is hard to um, you you know you, you you can't fake it basically. And the the other people on your team don't necessarily need to get it to that degree, but someone needs to. Yeah. So make so build a list of ideas before you show up and rank them into your favorite categories. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, yeah maybe. Or, or, or again, even on the day, I think um, there's something about being. I don't know. I don't know. I like the way that we got the teams together this time, right? With this kind of bazaar that we set up, where 
if you had a project idea or something you felt strongly about, or even just a buddy and you kind of knew that you were a proto team, that you grabbed a whiteboard and described your project on it or used it as a gathering point, and then the kind of people who hadn't figured out what they wanted to work on yet wandered around and and you know talked to people and looked at the projects and and thought a bit about them and if they were sort of feeling it or if the team was like desperate to have their skills on their team or whatever um then they then they stuck with them and eventually when they had five people they went off and started coding i think that worked really well um yeah, so there are basically I, I, job ads out there in the middle of the floor, and there's a big room yeah. where everyone gathered on the first day, and teams with a sort of semi-direction or an idea of what they wanted to work on literally wrote on a whiteboard, on a, on a mobile whiteboard, looking for coder with Keras experience. And uh, people would come around and, and shop themselves to yeah. the teams. It was very cool. Yeah, yeah, and I loved how it, you know, um, I guess I've seen mobile whiteboards before, but I thought it was really, uh, really nice how a very basic piece of technology, a big whiteboard on wheels, actually became a kind of part of this organizational strategy. Like it was a, a really nice physical manifestation of something that you could have tried to do in a spreadsheet, mm -hmm. um, right? Or a sort of no, so in a in a more in a less dynamic way, I, lo I loved how it kind of modelled the process in MeetSpace in three D. Anyway. And you know, low tech, low tech technology uh, won out several times during the weekend. <laughs> that is true. It also like some some amazing things really about watching teams work like. You know, first when I walked around the space, there were some tables that were very close together, and I thought, "Oh, that's they're probably a bit close." Like, I don't think a team is going to want to sit there and here because they'll be right next to each other, and it'd be really distracting. But they did sit right next to each other, and I don't think they were distracted at all. Like, once they were sort of turned inward in their little groups in the table on their tables, they were in their own world, kind of thing. Like, I think you could stress quite a bit about the physical environment. But actually, people just need somewhere to sit and somewhere to put their laptop and plug in for some, for some power, and they're pretty happy, you know. Yep. Like almost complete to the extent that they're almost oblivious to everything that's going on around them. I kind of love that um, the intensity and of that high productivity zone that everybody gets into because you don't. <laughs> it's very rare to experience that in an office context. Like yep. individuals experience it. But you almost never have like a whole floor of people experiencing it at the same time, and uh, yeah, we yeah. definitely did. I was I was, you know, talking on to Alexa over and over again. <laughs> I felt like I was going to interrupt people. Alexa, hey, blah da 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 da, and and then she would say ah da 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 da, and uh, no, no distraction. It was awesome. People were in the groove. Um, how do you train for a hackathon? Evan says. This is okay. So this is this is an interesting question because you have both participated in and run hackathons. So don't tell us about your don't tell us about the subsurface hackathon. Tell us about the hackathon you did hmm. uh, in Canada a while back. How did you prep? How did you train for that hackathon? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, if, uh, you, you need 
kind of big back pockets. I think you need you need to have poked around a little bit with a lot of little pieces of technology, partly just to sort of open your eyes to what's around and the, the diversity and, the, and and get used to the idea that basically every single thing you can think of, someone has done it. <laughs> I mean, it, it, right? And to get away from the idea that at a hackathon, you're going to be writing hundreds of lines of code. Because um, typically, you don't have time to do that. And, it, you know, it would just be super buggy and very difficult to do anything else like interact with your teammates and that kind of thing. So getting used to the idea of kind of hacking, like, I mean, that's kind of the point of hacking, right, is to pull solutions together to build something else. Mm -hmm. So knowing how to use web APIs, so knowing how to make calls in Python to a web interface and make a get request or a post request and handle JSON uh, when you get the, the contents of the request back or when you need to package the contents of your request up. Um, like that's a key skill that isn't, most scientific programmers won't have come across that kind of way of interacting with software before, right? They're used to installing a library and figuring out its its API locally. But web APIs are fantastic and there are services out there to do all sorts of things like natural language processing or um, image recognition and this kind of thing. Um, so I think that's a big one. It's important that at least a couple of people on every team know how to build a, a web server, I think, uh, or deploy a web app on some kind of platform like Heroku or Python Anywhere or Elastic Beanstalk uh, or Google App Engine or somewhere so that you can, you know, so basically going through a tutorial to set up a web app. So that's another one. Another one is a bit of JavaScript. Uh, again, not everyone on the team needs to know JavaScript and HTML5, but someone needs to, you know, four times out of five that your, your solution is going to involve uh, a website or a web app. Um, and, you know, if you're already programming in another language, it's not that big a deal to pick up JavaScript. It's a very forgiving, almost a too forgiving uh, language. Yeah, it's, it's pretty brutal. Um, but you can do magical things with it. So it's it rewards study, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know it's it's gross. The, I mean, to me, the grossest thing about it is how um, how forgiving it is. It's it's very hard to debug because the browser <laughs> yeah. the browser just shrugs its shoulders and goes, "All right, I'll give it a go," and almost everything like doesn't <laughs> explode. Uh, you know, unlike. Most programming languages where it just you'll just get a syntax error or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let me tell you about my experience and how I should have prepared because this was my first hackathon. Um, I don't want to say mentoring, but answering questions hmm. um, that teams were having. So I showed up thinking that I was going to be hacking. I mean, I thought I thought that I was going to spend my weekend kind of like working on a project or. Um, I don't know, maybe not working fully on a project, but working on maybe pieces of different projects. Uh, but instead, what happened a lot was that I, I, I got questions from teams who needed help with uh, services, like background stuff to make their demos work or to make their data handling work. Right. Um, 
and it was really instructive. I mean, it was like I I had a question about making publicly addressable, um, unique URLs for data access, okay. and I'm like, wait, wait a minute, you know, like I I know how to do that. No, wait, wait, wait. Hang on, actually, how do how do I do that? So it took me it took me you know thirty minutes to get get an answer a real good answer to them, and uh, so in the future, if you're running a hackathon, if I if I was going to do the same thing where I was sort of helping out teams, I think I'd spend a week or two ahead of time brushing up on all the stuff that just you know, or at least you think you know, but you haven't used in a while. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's a tough one, right? Because you don't really know what's gonna come up on the day. Is it gonna be like I don't know? It could be yeah. anything, right? Handling logins properly, hashing, all yeah. these things that you are always gonna have to look up. You're right. Um, right, right. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, what one other thing I'd say is there's a skill around. So I think I learned this skill when I worked at Landmark and did software demos twice a week. And um, there's something about always trying to fit things into a story kind of thing, like thinking about the putting the demo first and like mm -hmm. not worrying about how do I build my solution and then afterwards thinking, OK, how do we demo this? But right from the beginning, just thinking, how am I going to, what do I want to demo? And then build the demo. Yeah. <laughs> so you sort of, especially in a hackathon, I mean, that's basically the only requirement, right? It doesn't. Well, not not as just only in a hackathon. I mean, that that's true of, of product. Well, it's in sales, yeah. Development. <laughs> not just it's sales, sort of, but yeah, yeah. But it's sort but of you, true you, product development too. You're right. I was having a conversation with some folks yesterday about uh, a th a thing, a product they want to develop, uh, and they were talking about, well, let's everybody have kind of come up with some first steps and and write them down in, in a in a feature list. And I'm like, wait a minute. Folks, before we do that, we need to. You, you got to make a list of things that you you want in the end. Like you want the end goals first, and then and then come up with a roadmap to get there. It's it's really easy, and I do it all the time to set off in a direction, only to realize that you're heading the wrong way. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Um, um, but the other thing about demos is not just to be thinking about them, but also to. Um, have two root, two road, sorry, trying to mispronounce roots, uh, two roads to everything that you want to accomplish right. in a demo. So that if one of them doesn't work out, you have another way of achieving it or coping with the fact that it didn't work out. I so see. There's, some, yes. there's something about contingency. So basically, you're not spending the whole time just panicking, but it's like, Get something really easy working, and then that works, and then you can relax. And then the cool thing that you, the way you really wanted to do it, um, you've got time to try it. And if it doesn't work, it's no big deal because you already solved it in a crap way. I think that's a, a good approach um, to. A, I don't know how you train for that, but there's a there's a headspace to get into for hackathons that is, <laughs> you know, um, adaptable. So I hope that worked out for you, Evan. I hope, I hope that answer was satisfying. Matt. Oh, man. Uh, what, are uh, you, uh, what are you reading? Uh, oh, so yeah. I mean, I, uh, so I came home through, through the UK. I got the, uh, the Eurostar to London. 
after the uh, after the hackathon. Well, after EAGE actually on the Thursday, and then um, I got the train up to Cambridge, and where I was, was visiting my family. My sister lives in Cambridge, and um, Cambridge has some pretty awesome bookshops. Uh, you know, it's obviously a big university town, uh, a very uh, an indescribable feel to the place. You know, I, like I get this feeling a lot, even just visiting cities where you're like, whoa, like everyone's everyone's doing awesome stuff here. Like there's a very high level of productivity. People are rushing around. I know there's really cool, like it felt a bit like this in Silicon Valley where it's like there's, you know, uh, Oracle and Amazon and um, Evernote and all these companies that, you know, it's like, well, they're doing cool things. They're doing them really quickly and building a lot of value and all this. Well, you feel a bit like that in Cambridge too, but it's much more kind of just the awesome level of R&D and science that's going on there. Big science park. Obviously, the university has tons of stuff going on. Everyone seems very intelligent and studious and busy. And you're like, ah. <laughs> so it's this kind of like, yeah, it's good. It's energizing feeling to uh, to visit anyway. Um, anyway, yeah. So there's a bookshop called Heifers, <laughs> which is like the, the university bookshop. Uh, I think it's run by one of the big chains now. But uh, I love visiting that bookshop. It's got books on just ridiculous stuff. Um, so you could spend probably two weeks in there browsing. <laughs> um, anyway, so I bought quite a few books. My suitcases are quite heavy when I came home. Oh. And the, the one that I'm reading first, the one that I dug into first, is called uh, The Seven Pillars of Statistical Wisdom. And it's by Stephen Stiegel who is at the University of Chicago. And it's basically sort of seven core ideas in statistics from kind of aggregation to information content, um, regression, and some other core ideas. Four other core ideas, to be precise. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm only about, I'm only like halfway through the second chapter, but I'm quite- So you're still on idea number one? Uh, I think, no, I've read the preface. I'm halfway through idea number two. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, so uh, anyway, I just, I like reading about statistics. I feel like there's a headspace with statistics, like a, a you know, the, there's a point where you kind of get something, you know what I mean? Like in signal analysis, there's a point where you sort of get what domains mean and you get a, an intuitive feeling for these things that seem quite weird at first, like bandwidth or, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, spatial wavelength or whatever. Um, same in same in geology, like in sequence stratigraphy, say, where there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of stuff to know and to learn and to kind of read about before you can start going. Oh yeah, I get I get that now. You know, I get the relationship between I don't know sediment supply and relative sea level change. It becomes internalized, and I've never really reached that point with any aspect of statistics. <laughs> Like I don't, I still feel uncomfortable uh, with a, with a lot of it. I've never quite got to that point where I like intuitively grasp things and get a feeling for oh yeah, because of the Poisson distribution, I get why you would need that kind of summation or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a yeah. so I guess there's well a is that because for that is is that because the field is so broad? I mean, you know, if Maybe. you could list the, the sub disciplines of statistical analysis it would be 
you could you could write a book just on the. On that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And may, maybe it's too broad a field. Maybe just sort of maybe uh, bits of statistics are more intuitively coherent than the whole. I don't know. This is another thing I have no intuition about. Um, so I'm hoping that this book is one small rung on that ladder. Um, yeah. What about you? Cool. What are you reading? I'm reading the... Uh, a few weeks ago, we had Lindsay Hagee on the show, and uh, she talked about Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. Hmm. Do you remember this? Okay, so... Uh, yeah, I remember her okay. mentioning so it's, it's The name of the book is Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, in which the author goes through uh, important aspects of, of human history, and uh, in a sort of a philosophical way. And um, I didn't read it. <laughs> so I, I heard about it all over the place. Lindsay said it was awesome. It was on uh, the Gates Notes list. So it was awesome. I mean, every NPR, I just kept hearing about it. And um, it is still on my sort of inbox. That, but I, uh, the other day, I was reading through a book, one of these book lists that I keep up with. And, and his next book, which is called Homo Deus, uh, was on the list, which I had never heard of before, and for whatever reason, it's it seemed more interesting. And here's here is literally the reason that I picked his new book over the old one. Okay, old book title: Sapiens: A History, A Brief History of Humankind. Yeah. New book: Homo Deus: A Brief History of Tomorrow. Which one of those things are you gonna pick? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, you know, I judged I judged a book by its cover, and it is awesome. So it's the futureness of it that you liked? Of the yeah, yeah. So, that, so that the, was the appeal. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just thought a brief history of tomorrow sounded really cool. Um, but also I knew that it was gonna be about the next evolution of humankind. Um, you know, uh, based on what the first book was about. Mm. And it is fascinating. It's a three part book written uh, uh well, I'm not going to spoil too much because you need to read it. it. It it is really really great. So I'm I'm almost through the whole thing, um, and it's highly recommended. So it's it's an attempt to uh, predict the evolution of of humans into the next evolution into the next species. Okay. Right? So we're we're talking about timescales. Well, we we he he starts off by. Uh, predicting timescales which are on the order of 30 years and okay. moves all the way through of t you know timescales approaching you know the next the next mega years. yeah uh, maybe not mega years but but uh, hundreds of kilo years so um, would it be a spoiler to tell us if AIs play into this uh, it, no it's not a spoiler at all at all it's AIs are N not necessarily the biggest focus of the book, but uh, but uh, the sort of automation is. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, which is so it's it's really uh, written in a, in a in an interesting way. So without explicitly caring too much about how intelligent, maybe artificially intelligent beings become. It's very important to the author to understand how uh, the effects of t today's automation progress into the future. It's really fascinating. So um, 
on your recommendation a, a while ago, I read that book, um, Super Intelligence, um, by uh, Nick Bostrom. Is that who wrote it? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that book is actually referenced in the book I'm reading now, and um, but it's it's not it's not completely correlated. No. Okay. Very, awesome, yeah. awesome book. Read it. That man. sounds cool. I just uh, just added it to my my cart. I wanted to, like we should probably just get um, Steve Purvis on the show at some point. Um, sure. But I wanted to mention a book that he mentioned several times while we were in Paris. Ah. Um, because he probably won't be reading it anymore by the time we get to talk to him. Um, <laughs> and while I'm thinking about it, because I can't wait to, to read it myself, it's called Computer Science Distilled, um, Learn the Art of Solving Computational Problems uh, by... <laughs> uh, Vlaston Ferreira Filo, uh, who must be, I guess, from Brazil. and. Anyway, by Steve's account, it's awesome. Uh, basically, a sort of primer on computer science, or the, the highlights of computer science as a discipline um, for people who didn't study it, or skipped it, or slept through those classes at university, <laughs> or whatever. And uh, yeah, so, so he, he he had nothing but high praise for it. So looking for a way to sharpen up as part of your next hackathon training, um, maybe give that one a try. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, I'm sure you prepared to riddle me this for this episode. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, we've been, apparently, riddle me this is taking a break. Um, right. I actually spent about, man, I actually spent about 20 minutes uh, today looking through some riddles, which I was hoping would um, would help us out. But okay. I didn't come up with any that were uh, of undersampled radio quality. No? Okay. <laughs> so, if anyone out there who's listening has a, a suggestion for a riddle me this, please send it our way uh, because Matt needs ideas. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> Sign us off, Matt. That's it. That's it for this week. Well, that's awesome. I do like talking to you one on one. It's good. Um, We'll get some good guests lined up. I know we've got so we've got a few in the pipeline, which is none of them quite manifested. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the next few shows. For now, though, it's time to say goodbye. I'm uh, it's getting very warm in this little room. Like we haven't had a summer yet with these rooms that we built, and I'm it's getting almost uncomfortable. So I'm quite glad it's the end of the show. Um, hopefully, we'll chat next week. And until then, from me, goodbye. And from me, me goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>